you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And we will be reading verses 7 to 20. But I'll be preaching on Mark 3, 7 up to chapter 6, verse 6. But before that... Um, most of you have heard that the offering box was stolen last Sunday. We estimate that about $3,500 in checks and maybe about $450 in cash was taken. More than the loss of the money, I think we all feel violated and threatened by the theft. So, as you can see, the offering box is now in the auditorium at the back. That way we can keep an eye on it better. And we are implementing further security measures, which I will not tell you about because, well, that just <laughs> defeats the purpose. But if you do have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please feel free to speak to the deacons. We are, however, more concerned about losing something even more important than our sense of safety. See, if we respond to this theft by pointing fingers, by blaming each other, and by being suspicious of people, then we lose what makes Crestwick such a wonderful place. We lose our love for one another. So please, do not let the loss of $450 rob us of our love. I believe that God has providentially allowed us to experience this theft so that we could practice being a base camp for believers. And we do that by pointing one another back to Christ, who is our true security in the midst of our fear. He is the treasure that no thief can take away. And well, this theft is also a glaring reminder to all of us of the brokenness of our world in which God has placed us to be a lighthouse for the lost. That is why God gave us the gospel that we proclaim. So, instead of being overcome by evil, let us overcome evil with good. And we do that by going out of our way to welcome one another with the love that we have received from Christ. And as was mentioned earlier, we have the opportunity to welcome people, not just every Sunday, but on the 1st of April to welcome international students into our building, to show them hospitality so that we may proclaim the love of Christ to them. And April 15, we will also have um, a community event that will allow us to engage with people. So if you want to help out with the April 1, see me. If you want to, do, to help out with the April 15, see Sue Finley. And we would love to be able to engage with the people in our community. All right. So let's turn to the text. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. 
When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And When his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So, you know, the thief who took the offering box got $450. Sadly, the person lost far more. That person was so focused on getting money, he or she was blind to the glory of Jesus whom we worship. And sadly, that is nothing new. See, in this passage, you see that Jesus' ministry seems to be growing by leaps and bounds. People are coming from all over to see Jesus, verse 7 and verse 8. And they are so eager to be with him, he had to have his disciples, in verse 9, prepare a getaway boat because the crowd might trample him. Trouble is, according to verse 10, the crowd simply wanted to use Jesus to gratify their selfish desires. They thought of him as if he was a magic talisman that you rub in order to get healed, instead of acknowledging him as the Son of God worthy of their trust. They were coming to him, but they had no intentions of submitting to his authority. And the irony in this text is that it is the unclean spirits who were actually the ones who were submitting to Jesus' authority in verse 11 and verse 12. And then in verse 13 to verse 21, to verse 20, we see that in the face of the crowd's unbelief, Jesus, in verse 13, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Mark's language implies that these people whom he called submit to him because of his sovereign call. And he appointed 12 of them to be his apostles. And their submission to Jesus is a stark contrast to the family of Jesus in verse 21, who thought, who who wanted to seize him. Because his scandalous behavior that we talked about last week, he was touching lepers, he was forgiving sins, he was hanging out with sinners and claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, made them think, oh my goodness, Jesus has gone crazy. They wanted to do an intervention. 
But Mark does something very interesting in, in, in this passage. Instead of telling us what happens in the intervention, he leaves us hanging because he shifts the scene to talk about the scribes who had come all the way from Jerusalem to discredit Jesus. Now, you have to think about this. These scribes coming from Jerusalem would have traveled maybe a week to get to where Jesus was. And their goal was to discredit Jesus because they didn't think Jesus was crazy. They think, according to verse 22, Jesus has power over demons because he is possessed by Satan, because he is in league with the devil. And they make that accusation. And Jesus, well, shows them that their accusation is silly. Verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. That's silly. More importantly, Jesus asserts his identity in light of Isaiah 49, 24 to 26, when he says, but no one, in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is making a very important claim. R.T. France expresses that claim well. The fact that Jesus is despoiling Satan through his exorcisms proves that he has subdued him. I mean, we saw that last week when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus came out continuing to be faithful to his father. So that in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God is being established. The binding of the strong man is being achieved, not simply by a man, but by a man in whom the Spirit of God is working. And we saw that last week when Jesus at his baptism was filled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. And so... Jesus then moves on in verse 28 to warn the scribes against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And yes, I know that a lot of believers have stressed out over what is called the unpardonable sin and a lot of ink has been spilled. And I think James Edwards explains it well. The gravity of the offense of the scribes, as Mark declares in verse 30, is that they accuse Jesus of having an evil or unclean spirit. The sin against the Holy Spirit is thus not an indefinable offense against God, so that you suddenly find yourself beyond redemption, but a specific misjudgment that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than by good, that he is empowered by the devil rather than by God. Now, one of the things you need to understand about Mark is he likes to insert a story inside another story. In other words, Mark likes sandwiches. RJ, yes, it's a subway. (laughs) 
And here, what he does is that the story in the middle explains the framing story. If you will, the story in the middle is the meat of the sandwich. And here, Mark sandwiches the story of Jesus being accused of being in league with Satan with the story of Jesus' family thinking he is crazy and wanting to seize him. And he uses that framing technique to show that Jesus is God himself bringing salvation. Therefore, we must submit to him in faith. Unlike Jesus' family, who tried to control him, and unlike the scribes who tried to discredit him. And as a result of their unbelief, they remained outsiders. You, you see that in verse 31 and 32. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Mark is deliberate about that language of being outside and being inside. Verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, presumably inside the house, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You're either an outsider, like the scribes, like Jesus' family who refused to acknowledge who he was, or you are an insider, one who obeys God's will, one who recognizes who Jesus is, and therefore who has the privilege of being part of Jesus' family, who are born not of blood nor of the will of man, but by the will of God. And it's not because they are innately wise or spiritually discerning. It is because God enabled them to submit to Jesus. That's the reality that Jesus is explaining in chapter 4 in this first block of teaching. He's saying faith is a gift and he uses yet another sandwich. When I say it's a sandwich, you see in verse 1 to verse 9... Jesus gives the parable of the sower. But before he gives the explanation, all the way in verse 13 to verse 20, you have this discourse in verse 10 up to verse 12, where Jesus explains why he uses parables. Because his disciples were frustrated. They said, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you telling us? And so Jesus explains in verse 10 to verse 12 why he uses parables. He said to them, verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, this is a quotation from Isaiah 6, they may see, they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. On the one hand, the parable of the sower emphasizes emphasizes our responsibility to hear God's word and describes different responses to God's word. 
But Jesus wants his disciples to recognize that the ability to understand his word is a gift from God. Notice what he tells them in verse 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. To you has been given. It's not something they earn. It's not something they get because they're smart, because they've got further studies or they've got um, more holy attitudes. To them, it has been given. As James Edwards is pointing out, in both his person, in both his person and parables, Jesus precipitates a crisis among his hearers, dividing them along quite different lines, and that's happening right now too. Insiders are for those for whom fellowship and the will of Jesus take precedent over everything else. They hear, believe, and bear fruit, which is Mark's definition of faith. They can only hear by being with Jesus. And to them, the mystery is revealed. So does that mean that Jesus' ministry was a failure? Well, that's the point of the next parables. In chapter 4, beginning in verse um, I think 21, when he talks about the lamp under the basket. In the first place, the fact that the scribes and Pharisees rejected Jesus and his own family, misunderstand him, does not negate who Jesus is. He is still the king. And he tells the parable of the lamp under a basket to say that Jesus is among his disciples as a veiled king. But just as a lamp brought into a house is placed where it will shine brightly, so will it be with him. The day will come when Jesus will give light to the whole world. He will not remain hidden forever. But again, one can only understand who Jesus is and submit to him because of God's work. That's the point of the parable of the germinating seed in verse 26 up to verse 29. And those of you who farm or garden understand this. You sow seed, you don't really know how the seed will grow, right? The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the, sprout, the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He doesn't know how the seed is growing. All he knows is it's growing. And he sees the harvest ready to be reaped. And the point that Jesus is making is that it is God who makes the seed grow. In the same way that he is the one who enables faith in you and me. And we trust in Jesus because God has been gracious to us. And this reality that we ought to acknowledge should actually lead us to proclaim the gospel with compassion and with winsome humility. Look, it's not because you're smart. It's not because you're spiritual, whatever that means. 
It is because you and I are debtors to God's grace that we know Jesus. And he has graciously granted us the privilege of passing on to people around us the grace that we ourselves have received. And yes, I know it's frustrating, isn't it? Because people don't seem to want to receive the grace that we've received. But Jesus reassures us in the parable of the mustard seed, verse 30 onwards, that the kingdom of God will grow and expand so that the birds of the air, verse 32, can make nests in its shade. And that's our confidence as we proclaim the gospel. We plant, we water, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3, God alone causes faith to grow. And in fact, we are looking at this text 2,000 years removed from when Jesus first said these things. The gospel has grown, hasn't it? Twelve disciples, one of them was a traitor. 120 men and women gathered in Acts 2 in the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection. There's more than 120 right here. And we are not alone, are we? The kingdom of God has spread. And we look forward to God, to seeing God expand his kingdom even further. Because it doesn't depend on you and me. It is God who does the work. And in fact, you see God doing a work of grace in, in his disciples. We, we find that uh, chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Jesus, uh, Mark 4, I should say. <laughs> I jumped ahead. 33 and 34. We are told that with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. He's continuing to disciple his disciples <laughs> to explain what he was saying. And they needed his explanation because the message of God is something so paradoxical, so totally opposed to human insight that it takes nothing less than divine revelation to enable people to grasp it. It is, after all, the kingdom of God so that human thought alone is likely to be at a disadvantage in penetrating it's secret. And Jesus doesn't just teach his disciples. He is also continuing to shape his disciples through the miracles that he performed from chapter 4, verse 35 onwards. And he performs this, these miracles not simply to impress them. He had a deeper, fuller desire. He was seeking to draw them to himself so that they would learn to think God's thoughts after him. He was overturning their values and challenging their assumptions as they knew him better in relationship. And that's what discipleship is. This is what we seek. Not that God would agree with us, 
but that we would be challenged every time we are confronted with God's word. So we see that. Um, Chapter 4, verse 35, after a full day of teaching, Jesus had his disciples cross the Sea of Galilee. And while they were crossing, he decided to take a nap. And while he was napping, a violent storm arose. Now, remember, these are seasoned fishermen. They had seen many a storm. So if seasoned fishermen fear for their lives, this must have been something else, right? In desperation, they go to our carpenter who's taking a nap. They had nothing else they could do. And they accuse him of not caring. So Jesus says to the storm, peace, be still. Verse 39, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And here's the great part of this. They were afraid of the storm, right? After they saw what Jesus had done, they were even more afraid. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, they realized that they were in the presence of one who could control the forces of nature. That was something that only God could do us. You know, these were faithful Jews who were steeped in the Old Testament. Perhaps Psalm 107, verse 23 to 32. Flashed in their minds, just as it's flashed on the screen. Great, right? (laughs) He speaks, and the storm is stilled. And they feared Jesus greatly because they realized this is the sovereign Lord whom they could not control. You see, the sovereignty of God threatens our pride and disrupts our complacency. Jesus doesn't just overturn our values. He confronts our self-will. And his kingship challenges our desire to govern our lives according to our wishes. See, just like these disciples, we want Jesus on our terms. They wanted Jesus to wake up so that he could keep them safe and drive the storms, keep trouble away. But you notice who sent them on the sea in the first place. See, following Jesus actually invites storms because he is more interested in teaching you and me to trust him rather than in making us comfortable. And when they reached the shore, they got even more uncomfortable and they saw even more of Jesus' sovereignty. We are told in verse, chapter 5, verse 1, that as soon as Jesus set foot on the country, in the country of the Gerasenes, he was confronted by a man possessed by a demon, or so they thought. 
This man, we are told, was uncontrollable. Verse 3 to verse 5. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. I mean, this, is, this guy is stronger than Samson. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man was miserable and uncontrollable. But at the sight of Jesus in verse 6, he could but kneel before Jesus and cry out with a loud voice, What have you to do with us, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And we find out in verse 9 that this is not just a single demon. He is called legion, for there are many. Now, if you're wondering, a Roman legion has about 6,000 uh, 6, troops. 6,000 troops confronting Jesus. What do they do? They bow before the king. And they say, please don't hurt us. They try to negotiate, but Jesus cast them out, allowing them to enter a herd of pigs. And it's interesting, right? The pigs knew better than the man. Because they refused to be possessed. They stampeded and they drowned themselves. And word got back to the townspeople and they went to see what had happened. Now, again, put yourselves in the shoes of the townspeople. Wouldn't you have been happy to see this man clothed and in his right mind, this man who was a terror to the community? Well, look at their response in verse 17. They began to beg Jesus, stay, keep us from the demon? Nope. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They were more comfortable living with demons than being in the presence of Jesus. But, folks, before we mock them, before we condemn them, do we not prefer to live with our sin than confess our sin to Jesus, even though he promises to forgive us? Would we not rather change our behavior than repent of our heart attitudes? And wouldn't we rather allow a broken relationship to fester than ask forgiveness? We're just like them, aren't we? See, trusting King Jesus demands that we give up control of our lives to serve his purposes. And that's why faith has to be a gift from God. Because on our own, we would never, ever trust in Jesus. And we would never submit to his lordship unless God makes us realize that, yes, Jesus is not safe. But he is good. And that is why this man, who had known the presence of 6,000 demons in his, in his body, unlike his countrymen, begged, in verse 18, 
that he might be with Jesus because he knew Jesus is not safe, but he is good. He wanted to go with Jesus, but Jesus told him, no, 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 go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he was delighted to obey because he knew, he recognized how much Jesus had done for him. This is what motivates us. The goodness of Jesus, our delight in him, the fact that we know that he has had mercy on us is what pushes us to proclaim Jesus. And we see the goodness of Jesus even further chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus crosses over to the other side. They didn't want him, so he moved over. When he arrived at the other side of the lake, a synagogue ruler named Jairus pushed through the cloud and implored Jesus, please heal my dying daughter. And Realize, this man is a ruler of the synagogue, and he must have been really desperate. Because Jesus had just been accused by the scribes of being in league with Satan. That's just like me going to somebody who's been accused of being in league with Satan and saying, please heal my son. That's going to destroy his reputation in the community, that's gonna remove all credibility because he's asking Jesus, that guy whom the scribes accused of, being, of working with Satan for help. He had nowhere else to go. And so Jesus kindly goes with him. But as they're going to his home, we are told, here's another sandwich, a woman came up behind Jesus. She had been suffering from a continuing discharge of blood for 12 years. As long as Jairus' daughter had been alive, she had been bleeding. And that made her an outcast because her condition made her unclean. And all the treatments, we are told, all the treatments she had endured couldn't help. They just left her broke. So she was desperate, just like Jairus. And she touched Jesus' garment. That took a lot of courage because if anybody had recognized her, they would have known she was unclean. They would have perhaps beaten her. But she was desperate. So she creeps up behind Jesus. She touches his garment, trusting that if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And sure enough, as she touched his cloak, she felt the flow of blood that had weakened her and made her a social outcast immediately stop. Now this woman is anonymous. She is in contrast to Jairus, who is named, who is male, who is healthy, well-regarded as a leader of the synagogue. This woman was anonymous, was weak, was a social outcast. 
but both were in desperate need. Now the woman tried to melt back into the crowd, but much to her horror, Jesus stopped and said, who touched my garments? And she knew she had to come clean. What are you gonna do? Hearing the worst, she fell at his feet and told him the whole truth according to verse 33. And much to her surprise and delight, instead of scolding her for her impudence, Jesus told her in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. Far from condemning her, Jesus was bringing her into a life-transforming relationship with him. She realized, wow, Jesus genuinely cares for me. In his compassion, he wanted her to know that it wasn't touching his cloak that had healed her. Notice what Jesus says. Your faith has made you well. Faith in Jesus made her well. Jesus was moving her from the superstition of if I touch his cloak, if Jesus, Jesus is a magic object, to genuine faith. Jesus is the king who is able to make me well. She has moved from superstition to genuine faith. But the story isn't finished. I mean, if you were in the position of Jairus, you'd be... Man, good for her, but come on, my daughter is dying. Fact, you realize Jairus is about to feel even worse. Because while Jesus is still speaking, people from his house come to Jairus and say, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? All he could do is officiate at the funeral. What's, what good would that do? But you see the compassion of Jesus, don't you? Jesus says to Jairus, verse 36, do not fear, only believe. Well, Jesus, what else could I do? They go to his house and as they approach, they are met by people wailing. Now, these are, these are not family members. These are professional mourners. And when Jesus said, the child is asleep. Why, why are you weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laugh because these professional mourners are experts. I know dead when I see it. She dead. And so Jesus clears the house, they become outsiders, and he goes to the girl's room. And in the same way that he had stilled the storm and cast out an army of demons with a word, he took the girl's hand and said, Talitha kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately we are told, the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And rightly, they were overcome with amazement. 
Now in these four miracles, you see Jesus bringing life and hope in desperate and hopeless circumstances. They also demonstrate the devastation that sin has wrought. And it is that devastation that sin has wrought that is the root of our own desperation. And that's why Jesus came. He came to bring us life and hope by laying down his life on the cross. He lovingly laid down his life so that he may pay the price for our sin. And in his resurrection, he has brought about the new creation that will be consummated when he returns. All the miracles that he has performed foreshadow that great day when Christ returns and he will make all things new. But for our purposes, I hope you realize that the disciples, that anonymous woman, that man possessed by demons, Jairus himself would all testify to you and me that Jesus deserves our trust and submission. Yes, he is not safe, but he is good. And their responses of faith stand in stark contrast to the people of Nazareth in chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 6. Here's the sad part. Jesus had grown up among them. They knew Jesus. They knew his family. But they didn't really know him. Because we are told that they were astonished at the teaching of Jesus in verse 2. They said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How were such mighty works done by his hands? But instead of believing in him, verse 3, they took offense at him. That is the normal human response. Because Jesus isn't what we expect him to be. He is greater, far greater And only eyes opened by Christ can see the glory of Jesus. As Paul would say, God has caused the light of the gospel of the glory of God to shine in our hearts to give us the knowledge of Christ. As Tim Keller wrote, the claims of Jesus Christ, if they are truly heard for what they are, never evoke moderate response. Jesus claimed to be the Lord God of the universe who had come to earth to give himself for us so that we could live for him. That is a call for total allegiance. You will either have to run away screaming in anger and fear or run toward him with joy and love and fall down at his feet and say, I am Yours. Nothing in the middle makes any sense. Unless you are running away from him or running toward him, you actually don't really know who he is. So friend, what will it be for you? Will it be fear? Will it be faith? Will you join us in singing that last song, 
Because I belong to Christ, I know true freedom. Because I know I belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is not safe, but who is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are more glorious than we could ever imagine. And yet, in humility and grace, Christ came in veiled glory, but glory nonetheless. Showing us his identity by his works. But more than that, showing us your love by a sacrificial death on the cross. And we see the greatness of our sinfulness because we resist such love. We resist being owned by the one who rightly owns us. But we thank you that by your spirit, you have worked in our lives to bring us to faith, to cause us to see our sin, but more than that, to cause us to see the beauty of Jesus and to cast ourselves on him and to receive his gift of grace. And I pray that we who are recipients of your grace would learn more and more to delight in Christ, to recognize what good things he has done for us so that we may proclaim the mercy that you have shown us in Christ. And I pray, Father, for those who are here who do not know you, I pray that you'd be merciful to them, that you would open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus, to see the reality of their need, so that they may bow the knee and know the joy, the freedom that comes from submitting to your rule. This we ask not for our glory, but for the glory, the honor, the praise of your name. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.